listening to The Currency. Welcome. I'm Mike Gaston. I'm your host. Glad to have you guys along. Thanks for joining me. This is episode number 120 of the podcast, 120. Recording this on a sunny afternoon. It's Monday, September 12th, 2022 here in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, I am thrilled to be behind the mic. It's been a heck of a month, kids, a heck of a month. I'm not even going to get into it, but it's been a tough one. And uh, so I'm glad to have those last, I don't know, eight to six weeks behind me and uh, looking forward to, <laughs> to closing out this year. Can you believe we're talking about closing out the year? I mean, it's already September. We're, we're in the shoot for the end of the year, the holiday season, but looking forward to closing out the year on an up note on an up note. How y'all been? You hear me talking like a southerner here? <laughs> I do I do expect over time I will begin to sound more and more like a southerner. When we lived in um, when we lived in Cape Town, South Africa, I was younger and I started taking on that uh, dialect. It's just I don't know. I, it's normal. I know people kind of acculturate to wherever they are. Uh, I'll always be a northerner. There's no no hiding the fact that I'm from New York and that uh, that's where my roots are, but uh, I can even hear it in myself from time to time. It's fun to joke a little bit, but I can hear it in myself, so <laughs> a little self-conscious about that. You know, I've in the past talked about the hemispheres of the brain. I've been reading um, an author. His name is Ian McGilchrist. Uh, I started with a book of his, a good 700-plus pager called The Master and His Emissary. Gilchrist published that probably back in 2000 and I want to say 11, but it may have been 2009. I don't remember exactly. And I bought that book. I heard him on a podcast with Russ Roberts on the Econ Talk. thought, wow, this guy's fascinating. And Roberts had even said in the interview, hey, um, you know, Dr. McGilchrist, this book is dense. And I bought the book and it sat on my shelf for years. And last year I started reading it and I knocked it out. Like I said, it was, a, it was, it was a doorstop. It was a big book and it was pretty dense. There was a lot of, um, a lot of information in there, you know, stuff about neuroscience and medicine and psychology and psychiatry and all these aspects of the brain and tests that had been, in, that had been uh, conducted throughout the years on the human mind and the brain and so on. And it was good. Like, it was very eye-opening. McGilchrist is just a, a really unique individual because at the same time that it was chock full of brain stuff, it was also about art and life and poetry and literature and how human beings perceive and interact and think about uh, and attend to the world around them, around us. And it was just, it was just fascinating, fascinating. And he kind of makes this argument about the right hemisphere versus the less left hemisphere of the brain that, uh, that the right hemisphere tends to see things holistically. It's interested in living things and the bigger picture. It wants context. It wants narrative and story. 
you know, it, it, it's into beauty and art and all these kinds of things. Whereas the left hemisphere is very mechanical. It, it's, it's interested in things that are mechanical that are not alive. It wants to deconstruct things. De um, it wants to compartmentalize them. It wants to take them out of their context and categorize them and define them and break them down into their smaller and smaller constituent parts and, and, and control things and, and own things. It wants to kind of grasp and, and, uh, and create systems and process and so on. And McGilchrist kind of exposed this thinking to me and to others and, uh, and made some arguments around. Well, last year, at the end of the year, he came out with what you, know, you could easily call his opus magnum. It's a 1,400-plus page, two-volume book uh, called The Matter with Things. You've probably heard me talk about this before, but he essentially takes this concept that he shared with the world back uh, when he published The Master and His Emissary and has just taken it so much deeper, so much further, so much broader. It's just, it's just a stunning work. And I pretty much read the first volume of this two-volume set. I'm giving myself a little break just because I want to be able to read some other things this year, and I have been. Um, but it's such a it's such a fantastic work that as I'm reading, I'm taking extensive notes and so on. But he continues this right hemisphere, left hemisphere uh, dichotomy. Now, what's interesting about this discussion that McGilchrist is having with the world, um, at least for today, I mean, there's so much that's interesting, but for today is this ability for each hemisphere, I say ability, but the way each hemisphere sees the world and specifically not just in general broad strokes, but what each hemisphere sees uh, before it. And you can have individuals, you can have societies, you can have groups and cultures that are dominated by one hemisphere or the other. Now, McGilchrist's argument is that really the right hemisphere should be the master, meaning we really want to see the world through the right hemisphere, but that the hemisphere, the right hemisphere needs the left, meaning you see this kind of big picture, you see the big picture, you have this broader view, the tapestry, the narrative, the, the context. But you want the left hemisphere to get in there and break it all down into its constituent pieces. You want to get in there and dig in and understand all the pieces and compartmentalize and categorize and systematize everything. And then you want the left hemisphere to kind of return all this information back to the right hemisphere so it can reconstruct a more beautiful, a more nuanced, a more meaningful, bigger picture. Now, his argument is that the left hemisphere is kind of run amok. Our love of science and machines and, and mechanistic metaphors for life, like the body is a machine and this machine does this and this thing triggers that, and our systems and our processes and our algorithms and our digitization and, and decontextualization and... Um, abstraction of everyday life into all these kind of uh, digital processes and ways of interacting and our screens and so on, that the left hemisphere is becoming ascendant, that it is kind of driving society and that this is not good for humanity because the left hemisphere is not interested in anything that's living. It's very dehumanizing. It devivifies and abstracts the world around it. 
so he makes this kind of general argument. It's a very compelling argument. It's fascinating. It's very troubling at the same time. You, you read what he's saying, and the book is not a polemic. It's, it's, um, you read what he's saying, you start to apply what he's saying to what you see in the world around you, as I'm doing, and you're like, wow, where, <laughs> where does this end? But um, what's interesting in, that I wanted to kind of bring up today is this way that these each hemisphere sees things, and specifically... You know, like the right hemisphere is trying to to comprehend something. It wants to get its arms around something, not to control it, but to comprehend it, to understand it. And, and to do that, it's it's looking for the broader narrative. It's trying to construct, like, what is the truth here? It wants to know truth. And it's trying to understand truth within a sort of context. And so the nice thing about the right hemisphere is that when it's pre presented with new information, new facts, new um, things that will have a bearing on whatever it is it's trying to comprehend, it will take those into consideration. It may actually change its stance on something. It may say, well, wait a minute, this changes the context. I have to reconsider. I have to understand this differently than I did before. The right hemisphere is able to see things that actually contradict what it thinks to be true. This is why McGilchrist argues often, this is one of the reasons often, people that tend to be more right hemispheric oriented, oriented more towards the right hemisphere, uh, wrestle with depression at times. Think that the, the world isn't what they want it to be. Sometimes it's the bigger picture is depressing. It's it's filled with conflict and, and sadness and so on. He's not saying that if, if you're depressed, you must have you know, a great right hemisphere. But just that people with the right hemisphere kind of dominating tend to be a little bit more, uh, they wrestle more with depression. That's why you see artists and so on, creative types wrestling with depression. Uh, but the right hemisphere is able to grasp and even accept things that run contrary to what it believes, thinks, or understands, and then it tries to reconsider. Again, it's, it's really reaching for comprehension. Now, what's interesting is the left hemisphere is just the opposite. The left hemisphere constructs for itself a story a truth, a belief, an argument, its own facts. It breaks everything down. It gets all this data, all these pieces of information. And from that, it decides what it thinks is true. And once the left hemisphere locks in, and this is what's important here, once it locks in on what it thinks is true, you cannot push it off that point. In fact, you can, you can present the left hemisphere with conflicting or challenging information, and it will ignore it. It will, it, it will confabulate stories to explain it away. It will, at times, be unable to see that information, literally unable to see it. Now, they can do these things, and they know these things because of a couple um, situations. One is they have people who have damage to one hemisphere or the other, and when those, they've either had strokes or, you know, injuries to their heads, et cetera. And so knowing that that side of the brain is not functioning properly, they're able then to observe how people with one hemisphere or the other, where they're relying on one hemisphere or the other, uh, behave. 
and they can see that. The other thing that they can do, there are these different types of tests where they can actually shut down one hemisphere temporarily through uh, certain types of stimuli, freezing cold water, electrical impulses. <laughs> there are things that they can do to, to temporarily disable one hemisphere. And then once they do that, they can present that individual undergoing the test with certain stimuli, certain pieces of information, certain challenges. Can you draw this? Can you write that? Can you identify this? Can you identify, you know, what do you call this or that? And, and then they can observe how these people behave. And this is how we can see how each is one of the ways that we can see how these hemispheres work or don't work. And so the left hemisphere, when presented with information that runs counter to what it understands or believes to be true, often cannot even see that information. It can't see it, literally, visually. It can't hear it. It can't see it, smell it, taste it. Like it's that information that runs counter, it just, it just ignores it. It blots it out of its understanding, of its recognition, recognition. It's fascinating. And think about your own life. I mean, you must be bumping up against people. You look at the last handful of years and it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a mess out there. I mean, how can anybody get a piece of information and we all go, yeah, we all agree on this piece of information. I mean, the, the world is just so at odds. It's like all out war. Everybody's at war with everybody and nobody's going to agree with anybody. And any piece of information that you get, there's going to be a billion other people that scream, that's all fake. And it's, you know, it's made up and, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a charlatan and so on. So it's next to impossible to find a piece of information that all of us can agree upon. But that said, getting past just that, that shit show that is the world we live in right now, uh, you, you have to notice this, this trait at, you know, going on. I mean, look at right now. I mean, I'm going to pick on the whole COVID thing. But there are those of us who have been saying from the, almost the outset, because there's certain things you just couldn't know at the beginning, but almost at the outset, you know, um, this is ridiculous. We're overreacting. Uh, you know, we've been critical of the vaccines. We've been saying that natural immunity is just as good, if not better than the vaccine immunity. And how can we even know anything about the vaccines? Because they weren't tested, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and the world has been, I mean, outraged. How dare you question? How dare you assert? How dare you step out of line? I mean, it's just been infuriated. I mean, you've dealt with these people. You had to have, or you may be one of these people. Well, the CDC at the end of, at the end of um, August came right out and said that, yeah, actually the vaccine, those that are vaccinated uh, have no better uh, immunity than those that are unvaxxed. And in fact, we're questioning some of that. And oh, by the way, if you have COVID uh, or if you were exposed to someone with COVID, just you know, carry on with your life. Don't don't uh, stay home. Don't sequester. Don't quarantine. Go to work. Uh, if you've got it, you know, as soon as the symptoms are gone, get back to work like masks, unmasked. Like they're essentially coming out and saying all the stuff that those of us like you and I have been saying all along. They're just saying, yeah, pretty much we agree. Now, what's interesting about that is for years now, we've been arguing this vehemently and and, and no one would listen. 
But even now that this has come out, it's fascinating to watch when you when you interact with people who I had somebody uh, just recently. Well, you know, the, the those, the, the, you know, the, there was a whole there, there was a personal situation and people were very uptight that that I and my wife were not vaxxed and they they were nervous about us participating. And, well, you know, uh, if you don't have the vaccine and so on and, you, you know, contagious. Now, meanwhile, these people literally had just had where we're having covid throughout this kind of argument interaction, if you will, that spanned a handful of weeks. Uh, they, they had covid themselves. Now, they're vaxxed as much as you can be vaxxed. So there they are suffering from COVID. Here I am healthy as a horse, and yet they're terrified because I'm unvaxxed that somehow I may be a threat to everybody. Now the CDC comes out during this whole uh, episode, if you will. Nobody in this group said, oh, hang on a minute, Mike. We, we didn't realize, but now that we're seeing this new information, uh, we want to backtrack. Now, look, people get into there are other reasons. It's not just the left hemisphere can't see it, so they're ignoring it. There are personal reasons. There's pride. There's shame. Uh, there's cognitive dissonance. Man, if I if I was so vehement this way, now if I admit to myself that that it's that I was wrong, I've got dissonance. I've got cognitive dissonance that I have to deal with, because what is that? You know, I think of myself as being smarter than Mike, or or more right than Mike, or seeing the world better than Mike. And now I have to admit that maybe Mike is right, which creates this whole distance. Like maybe he, what else is he right on? <laughs> well, let me tell you, <laughs> listen to my podcast. I'll share everything that I'm right on. But I'm sure you, like me, have been experiencing this where people are being presented with facts like data points and they just can't accept them. They can't accept what the data points show. They can't ex accept what the facts show. They've made a decision. They, they have a truth that they're holding on to and they refuse to let go. So it's very interesting. I want to share with you a story uh, that was written quite a while ago. Um, and I, and I, think, I think you might find this interesting. Now, there's a guy, his name, I want to, uh, this has been a while. I uh, and, and I, in full expose, uh, full, um, uh, I don't know what the confession here, full disclaimer, disclosure, disclosure, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, there was this, I recorded this episode about a week or two ago and was just very unhappy with the recording. I was just coming off that tough period of time. And um, I tried to record the podcast because I just felt like I need to get an episode out there. And it just was so flat. It was just about as flat as, I was just emotionally, mentally, physically exhausted. And uh, anyway, so so I'm just coming back to some of my notes, but the guy's name is Daniel Everett. And Everett uh, was a linguist, a linguist, not a linguisticist. He was a linguist. And he spent time in the Amazon jungle with a group of people. And he initially went out there, I believe, as a Christian. He was a, a Christian linguist. He went out there to work with these people. And uh, he, he was working in the Amazon basin. Um, I'm not going to, my pronunciations aren't going to be quite right, but the people I think are called the, Para, um, the Paraha people. And he was studying their language. While he was there, he lost his faith. He, he lost his faith in God. I don't know that whole story, but he wrote a book that he's well known for. And that book is called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. And it was published a while ago. And essentially, uh, 
he's in this village and this event happens. And I, and I just want to read it to you. It's a little long, so forgive me. Uh, but I want to read this to you because I, this has to do, I think, with this, with this piece of not being able to see things that are right in front of them or that, that, they, that the left hemisphere makes us see things in a certain way. I'm not, by the way, accusing Daniel Everett of being a left hemisphere guy. I think this has to do more with Western culture and so on. But here's an excerpt uh, from Everett's Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. It's taken from uh, the uh, uh, NPR website. They did an interview with him and they published this excerpt. Here we go. Look, there he is, Exegai, the spirit. Yes, I can see him. He's threatening us. Everybody, come see Exegai quickly. He's on the beach. I roused from my deep sleep, not sure if I was dreaming or hearing this conversation. It was 6.30 on a Saturday morning in August, the dry season of 1980. The sun was shining, but not yet too hot. A breeze was blowing up from the Maikai River in front of my modest hut in a clearing on the bank. I opened my eyes and saw the palm thatch above me, its original yellow graying from years of dust and soot. My dwelling was flanked by two smaller Paraha huts of similar construction. Where I lived, Exohobisi, uh, Koho Abihai and their families. Yeah, I, I can't pronounce these names, but we'll just keep going. Mornings among the Parajas, so many mornings, I picked up the faint smell of smoke drifting from their cook fires and the warmth of the Brazilian sun on my face, its rays softened by my mosquito net. Children were usually laughing, chasing one another, or noisily crying to nurse, the sounds reverberating through the village. Dogs were barking. Often I went when I first opened my eyes, groggily coming out of a dream, a paraha child or sometimes even an adult would be staring at me from between the piaxuba palm slats that served as siding for my large hut. This morning was different. I was now completely conscious, awakened by the noise and shouts of parahas. I sat up and looked around. A crowd was gathering about 20 feet from my bed on the high bank of the Maisi that's the river, and all were energetically gesticulating and yelling. Everyone was focused on the beach just across the river from my house. I got up out of bed to get a better look, and because there was no way to sleep through the noise, I picked my gym shorts off the floor and checked to make sure there were no tarantulas, scorpions, centipedes, or other undesirables in them. Pulling them on, I slipped into my flip-flops and headed out the door. The Barajas were loosely bunched on the riverbank just to the right of my house. Their excitement was growing. I could see mothers running down the path, their infants trying to hold breasts in their mouths. The women wore the same sleeveless, collarless, mid-length dresses they worked and slept in, stained in a dark brown from dirt and smoke. The men wore gym shorts or loincloths. None of the men were carrying their bows and arrows. None of the men were carrying their bows and arrows. That was a relief. Prepubescent children were naked, their skin leathery from exposure to the elements. The baby's bottoms were calloused from scooting across the ground, a mode of locomotion that for some reason they preferred to crawling. Everyone was streaked from ashes and dust accumulated by sleeping and sitting on the ground near the fire. 
It was still around 72 degrees, though humid, far below the 100 degree plus heat of midday. I was rubbing the sleep from my eyes. I turned to Ko Hoi, my principal language teacher, and asked, what's up? He was standing to my right, his strong brown lean body tensed from what he was looking at. Don't you see him over there? He asked impatiently. Exagai, one of the beings that lives above the clouds, is standing on the beach yelling at us, telling us he will kill us if we go into the jungle. Where? I asked. I don't see him. Right there, Kohoi snapped, looking intently toward the middle of the apparently empty beach. In the jungle behind the beach? No, there on the beach. Look, he replied with exasperation. In the jungle with the Parajas, I regularly failed to see wildlife they saw. My inexperienced eyes just weren't able to see as theirs did. But this was different. Even I could tell that there was nothing on the white, sandy beach no more than 100 yards away. And yet, as certain as I was about this, the Parajas were equally certain that there was something there. Maybe there had been something there that I just missed seeing, but they insisted that they were seeing Exegai. I'm sorry, but they insisted that what they were seeing, Exegai, was still there. Everyone continued to look toward the beach. I heard Christine, my six-year-old daughter, at my side. What are they looking at, Daddy? I don't know. I can't see anything. Chris stood on her toes and peered across the river, then at me, then at the Parajas. She was as puzzled as I was. Christine and I left the Parajas and walked back to our house. What had I just witnessed? Over the more than two decades since that summer morning, I have tried to come to grips with the significance of how two cultures, my European-based culture and the Parajas culture, could see reality so differently. I could never have proved to the Parajas that the beach was empty, nor could they have convinced me that there was anything, much less a spirit, on it. As a scientist, objectivity is one of my most deeply held values. If we could just try harder, I once thought, surely we could each see the world as others see it and learn to respect one another's views more readily. But as I learned from the Parajas, our expectations, our culture, and our experiences can render even perceptions of the environment nearly incommensurable cross-culturally. It's very interesting to me, this account that Everett shares. I'm not trying to make anything of it. I'm not arguing that, see, he's left hemisphere, so he can't see it. And if he were right hemisphere, he'd see it. I think that's an oversimplification of the situation, of any situation. But there clearly is something going on here. How, the, these people, you, you know, we like to try to science things away. Well, it was some type of, you know, mass hysteria. There was groupthink. Maybe they were all having a shared hallucination. We try to find these material explanations to help us understand what's going on, this anomaly. There must be some scientific explanation for it. Maybe there is. But clearly something was going on with these people. Clearly they saw something. 
And clearly, Everett didn't. And as I think about McGilchrist and his argument about the left and the right hemisphere and, his, and how the left hemisphere struggles to see things that do not fit within its understanding of truth and reality, that it will confabulate to explain away, to make something disappear in order to retain its sense of what is true. I can't help but begin to think or be reminded, I guess I should say, of the scriptures. I can't help but be reminded about some of the prophets and even something that Christ said. You know, in Isaiah, Isaiah 6.10, he cries out to God, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Essentially, Isaiah praying to God, close these people's hearts and minds. Don't let them see the truth because if they see the truth and they hear the truth, they'll come back to you. They'll repent. They'll be healed. How about Jeremiah 5.21? Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Again, he's, this is Jeremiah the prophet chastising the children of Israel for not being able to see, even though they have ears, and not being able to hear, or sorry, not being able to see, even though they have eyes, and not being able to hear, even though they have ears. Or how about Ezekiel 12.2? Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see, but does not see, and ears to hear, but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets talk about people that have eyes to see, but can't see. They have ears to hear, but they can't hear. It's always within the context of being rebellious. What does that mean, rebellious? Rebellious against who? They're just naughty. They're just uh, troublemakers. You see, the under, underlying kind of truth in Scripture is that there is a king on a throne, that he has authority, all power, all authority, that the world must come into order to his truth, to his will, to the reality of who he is. And anything that fights against that order, anything that shakes a fist saying, I will not bow my knee. I will not obey. I will not submit. I will do things my way. That is rebellion. Now, the, the only way, I say the only way, but the only way that you can really live in rebellion against God is to create your own reality. You have to create your own reality. You have to tell yourself there is no God. You have to tell yourself that God is evil. You have to tell yourself that somehow you deserve more to be in control, to be in charge than God does. You have to tell yourself that you are better than him, that you are more righteous, more holy, more just, more merciful, more good. You have to create some story, whether 
It's God doesn't exist, whether he doesn't deserve my obedience. Because otherwise, what you're essentially saying is, I am wicked. I am choosing to be wicked. And even those that choose to be wicked, why would they do that? They have to create a rationale, a story for that rebellion. And the more that you create this rationale, the more you create a story, the more you create your own truth, you're creating a fictive world, a world that is not true. It is based on lies, deception, fantasy. There's only one way to do that. You can't look at the big picture. You can't look at the giant tapestry that is the universe that you live in, the world that you live in, the creation that you are part of. You can't look at things like, like just the mere fact that, that, that you exist is a statistical impossibility, a near statistical impossibility. The complexity of life on this planet is a near statistical impossibility that, that actually scientists don't even fully understand what's going on in a teaspoon of soil from the ground, let alone our bodies and the world that we live in and the universe that we are a part of and the cosmos as a whole. You have to construct some type of alternate reality, which is an untruth. It's a lie. Well, the more you do that, you, it becomes harder and harder because you're, you're holding on to this thing. Your, your left hemisphere, if you will, is insisting that it, this is the truth. And then when confronted with things that run afoul of that truth, that challenge that truth, that undermine that truth, that strip that truth of its authority, what happens? We cannot see the very things in front of us. We cannot hear the very things being said to us. I want to turn real quick to Jesus. He's sharing the parable of the sower. This is Matthew 13. And on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And a great multitude were gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. This is the New King James Version, by the way. And he spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on the ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so later the disciples come to him. And I'll just continue reading here. Then the disciples came to him uh, and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he who have, he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. 
nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And then Jesus finishes by saying, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. I think it's not just the meaning of the parable that Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to the fact that he, the son of God, Fully God, fully man has come, the righteous one, to provide salvation. And you're looking right at him. And there are many people looking at him that can't see who he is. And there are others that have eyes to see and ears to hear. I want to challenge you today, as you go about your life, <laughs> it's a grand scheme of things here. It's, I want to challenge you to think about this idea of being able to see and being able to hear. How much of the world around us do we take for granted? How much of the world around us are we missing? How much of the world around us is right in front of us and we can't see it? Now, you might be asking, well, uh, you know, how do I, what's this right hemisphere and how do I access all this? And, you know, if I were more creative and artistic, would I also see X a guy on the, on the shores, the demon across the river screaming at the the terrified people of the village. I think the only way that we can see the truth, is, you know, is this approach, this, this broader approach, the bigger picture. We have to see context. We have to see things in their proper context. And there's, there's one sure way to get there. And that secret is a man. It's Christ. You, you, you can't understand scripture, Old Testament or new, without looking at it through the lens of Christ. Christ is the lens through which we understand both Old and New Testament because the Old and New Testament reveal Christ to us. Every passage of scripture, good, good theological work is grounded on the concept that all of scripture reveals Christ to us in one way or another. And when you approach scripture with that mentality, you do great. It's when people get off on these weird tangents, when they try to deconstruct scripture, use literary techniques, you know, this is poetry. And so those things are fine for what they are. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not like so close-minded. There are some techniques that are great, but at its foundation, at its root, and in the end, you need to interpret scripture through the lens of Christ. Well, that's true for life. This universe, life, society, science, arts, culture, economics, family, love, sex, all these things, they make sense through the lens of Christ. And so the more that you focus on him, the more you start to see the bigger picture, the more you focus on him, the things that are right in front of your face that you're missing become clearer and clearer. They appear before you. You see and understand them. So I want to encourage you today as you're going about your life, you know, and whether you're a Christian or not, 
I mean, I, I'm just going to challenge you, whether you're a Christian or not, whatever you believe, at least ask yourself, what am I not seeing? Just look at the world, look at society, look at media, look at all the conversations and arguments and battles and wars. Look at Ukraine and Russia. What's true? What's not true? Look at the political battles. What's true? What's not true? Who's corrupt? Who's honest? Who's trustworthy? Who's, who's not? What's going on? We don't know what's going on around us. How do you intuit these things? How do you see these things? How do you comprehend what's going on around you? Well, how do you do it? Christian or non-Christian? And I'm not saying that like, by, by merit of being a Christian, you see all this stuff. You don't. I, I can't tell you how many Christians don't seem to know what's going on around them. And I don't mean don't agree with me. They don't even know how to ask critical questions. I'm talking about questions that, that secularists know how to ask. Like, and I don't mean because they're airy-fairy religionists. They're just clueless. It, it, being a Christian doesn't automatically give you a well of wisdom to pull from. I mean, it's available to you, but it doesn't mean that these Christians are living in that. But I don't care what you are or who you are. I mean, I, I care. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, look at the world around you. Do you feel confident that you're seeing the truth? Do you feel confident? And the fact is, most of us don't have access to all this deeper information. We, I can't know... I mean, I mean, I can I can infer some things from the Hunter Biden laptop and Joe Biden's history, his, you know, 40 year history or whatever it is in Congress, in the Senate and his corruption and his lying. I mean, Joe's been caught lying for, for years, well before he was on the center stage like he is in today's society. And Joe's had to bow out of, of presidential the presidential race, you know, way back in the early 90s, I want to say, because he was caught plagiarizing, et cetera. Uh, so so I mean. I can infer things about them, but at the end of the day, I don't know who Joe Biden is tied into. I don't know how dirty he is or how clean he is. I don't know how trustworthy he is or untrustworthy he is. I don't know why they're making the decisions they make. And I can't. I'm just some guy living in Charleston, South Carolina, making a podcast, doing some consulting work, trying to be a good husband and uh, getting a little sunburned when I hit the beach on the weekends. I mean, that's me. I can't know all these things, but if I center my focus on the truth as embodied in the God-man, Jesus Christ, I am able then to see things around me and understand the world in a way that I didn't have access to before. And so I want to challenge you. Are you seeing the truth around you? Are there things right in front of you that you're not seeing? And if so, well, how would you even know that, right? Are you confused? Are you disoriented? Do you want to know the truth? That's one of the interesting things about the left hemisphere. It doesn't want to know anything but what it already thinks. It's not interested in discovering new things. It's not interested in being challenged. It's confident. It's arrogant. It's secure in the knowledge that it knows what's true. It knows what's right. It's got the data. And you, my friend, are wrong. <laughs> Food for thought. Food for thought. I'm fascinated by this. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious. Like, what is it that I'm not seeing in this world around me? And I don't mean just the political. I don't mean like, oh, I, I want to uncover all the political truth. I'm just trying to live a life every day. 
I want to be more oriented to what's true, to what's real, to what's human. And I'm convinced that the society that we live in is oriented in such a way that it, it tries to deny us those things. It tries to strip us, rob us, keep us from those things. And I want the truth. And I want the truth for you too. Guys, I love you all. Thanks so much for spending some time with me. Looking forward to our next episode. In the meantime, uh, if you haven't done so already, sign up for my newsletter. Just go to pages.com mikegaston.com pages.mikegaston.com you can sign up for the newsletter there it's free would love to connect with you that way it's a way for me to keep touch with everybody when i'm not able to get content out there also alert you to new content share my thinking and so on would love to see you sign up if you haven't done so already and if you have found anything about this podcast thought noteworthy etc shoot me an email mike at mikegaston.com always love conversing with you guys again love you all and i'll catch you in the next episode